Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's your evil wizard, Holden McNeely. <laughs> oh, falling off the tower. Oh, I got impaled by a spike, like in my earlier career. And it is I, your regal Count Duku bruiser, Jake. I'm very tall and old, and I'm definitely really fighting. You're not just seeing a bad Photoshop CG head of me as I flip around. Doobly doo. The Trade Federation and the Sith will be reborn. And it is I, Dracula. <laughs> Oi, governor, I'm from jolly old England and that show is Dracula. <laughs> what, what? Now get into this wicker man, but now light you on fire. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> we should have just done a Wicker Man episode. Holy Dude, shit. I am so excited to watch the Nick Cage Wicker Man now that I've seen the original. Uh, <laughs> by the way, we're doing an episode on Christopher Lee. Welcome to the Wizard and the Bruiser. It's been a hell of a week. I shed the blood of the Saxon man. I shed the blood of the Saxon man. <laughs> This was just such a fun one because of the range of, of media we got to consume from like <laughs> schlocky horror films to, to, you know, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars to metal music. Uh, so much fun. And I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Also, this is a Patreon sponsored episode. Tyler Folis, thank you so much for your patronage. Thank you so much for sponsoring this ep. Here it is. Uh, I'm a part of a little podcast group slash YouTube channel called Threat X3 Productions, and we have a bunch of podcast episodes and content out. I mainly manage the Discord, but appear in the show from time to time. We cover most aspects of consumable entertainment and have some very interesting topics and conversations. We're small, but I think we have potential. The YouTube and Discord channels are under Threat X3 Productions. That's Threat X3 Productions. Thank you again, Tyler. So... One of the things that, like, I really think about having consumed so much Christopher Lee media and watching so many interviews is the dude is such a crazy class act in a way that, like, is almost he's he's a larger than life figure. Like, you know, when you think about a guy who's played, quote unquote, heavies his entire life, who has been just so steeped in genre fiction but is also tied to, like, European royalty and the military and, like, acting and, like, the grand traditions of stage and screen and all this. But just every single interview I've ever seen him do, he's always, he knows his stuff. He doesn't act like he's really better than his material. And, like, he'll just go ahead, even in, you know, in his 80s, just, like, start correcting people when they start quoting, like, Tolkien wrong. Like, he knows his shit. He's not, like, the kind of guy that's, like, playing, you know, doing an interview and being like, oh, I don't know, it was some 
some uh, space thing. I did it for the money. I don't, you know, he's always just like, well, you know, you see Count Dooku wanted to become <laughs> the apprentice for there must only be two and his betrayal is what informed the performance. And like he, he is committed. He does mm-hmm. not like speak down to his fans and everything from the occult to uh, fantasy to military history to the craft of acting. He is like so sincere and just really like just gives off the kind of grandfatherly vibes that just like really makes him an endearing figure. That's what like really stuck with me. For me personally, I'll t- I'll give my gush cuz I do have a bit of a gush for Christopher Lee and I think that would really just be my love for him is Sauron in the Lord of the Rings films. Saruman. Already- Saruman, oh my god, how dare I? Sauron's just the big dumb eye. Just Saruman's big dumb eyeball. On the, he's in the tower, he's raising the Urukai, he's, he's getting shit done. The wizard battle, it's one of the coolest parts of the whole thing. <laughs> Either way, Saruman was great in the role, I was obsessed with those movies at a point in time, and I got the extended DVDs, and I watched all of the appendices, like, making up stuff, and I was struck at just how wonderful it was that Saruman, played by Chris Lee, that Chris Lee himself was this massive Tolkien fan, the only person on the set that actually had met Tolkien in real life. He was, he reads the books once a year, and although he did, of course, really want to play Gandalf, we'll get into that when we get there, but he still just was so happy to be a part of that production, so thrilled to be there. It was such a dream come true for him, and I really connected with that and just loved that that was the case, to the point where he was a resource on set to the people, you know, because he was so knowledgeable of the text that he would actually make little corrections and things like that and was like a real, real useful person there outside of just his performance. And I really loved that. And he really stood out to me for that reason. And that's my Christopher Lee is Saruman, really, up until this point. Now I've seen The Wicker Man. He was fantastic in that movie. That's a great, great film. (laughs) So weird. I actually wait. I don't know if I say great, great. There's a lot of bizarre, especially the nudity in that movie is just real, and, and it's also like almost a musical for like half of it. It's it's the it, tree it, has I, the branch, the branch has the fruit, the yeah. fruit becomes the man, the man fucks his wife, the wife becomes a tree. It's yeah, super it's creepy. very weird. It's super creepy and weird, but he's really great in it, and I think that. It goes places. I really enjoyed, especially like the final about half an hour of that movie, like the May 1st festival I thought was really well done. Either way, aside from that, of course, he's done so much other stuff. I really enjoyed his his work in music, though, too. His metal albums are pretty cool and pretty legit. And I just think it's so cool because he was doing that in his 80s, in his 90s. It's pretty special stuff that he, that he and that he created until the day he died. He He worked on stuff and was was in it until the day he died and i think that that is also an amazing thing about his prolific career the actual like you know it gets a little wishy-washy when you bring in uh industries like bollywood but uh i i feel comfortable enough saying that he held the world record for the most film credits on an as an international film star like Mm -hmm. close to 300 films to his name which is insane and the fact is yeah, he was down. He was game. He just liked to work. He just liked to be in it. He would show up to festivals. He would show up to conventions. He would, you know, just reams of interviews because he was willing to sit down with everyone. Hell, even um, 
We even have footage of him sitting down with Travis Irvine, friend of the show. Mm-hmm, which is talking so funny. About, like, Should we talking even to, get into this? Yeah. We're not going to get <laughs> into it, but just like, you know, uh, with uh, with Lloyd Kaufman from Troma. It was pre- it's pretty amazing. You can go look that up. It's pretty hilarious. Either way, I think we should just dive right in because I got a ton to cover here because this what? man had a very long life. J- just very because long life. this night, this man who died at ninety three literally never stopped doing shit doesn't mean we have a lot to cover. <laughs> as an actor, as a uh, war person, war is a, person is that a word? <laughs> no. to use? As a soldier, there's, there's soldiers, there's veterans, <laughs> there's officers, there's and then there's me, the war person. And then... I'm just the guy that likes to sit back on a lawn chair and enjoy my wars. Either way, Christopher Lee. Here's the synopsis: an English actor, singer, and author known for playing villains such as Dracula, Saruman, and Count du- is it Duku? Duku. Uh, and has appeared in over 200 films spanning seven decades. That's right, ladies and gents, so let's jump in. Born in Belgravia, London, to a father who was a lieutenant colonel of the 60th King's Royal Rifle Corps and his wife, Countess Estelle Marie. Lee's father fought in the Boer War and World War I. His mother can be traced to Charlemagne, who's going to come back into the picture later in the medal years. He's already got, like, the advantage because his mom is an actual, like, Italian countess. Yes, an actual Italian countess. Charlemagne was the king of the Franks, king of Lombards, and the emperor of the Romans, responsible for uniting the majority of Western and Central Europe in the early Middle Ages. Uh, And Countess Estelle, as you mentioned, a true countess, Countess Estelle was a beauty in her day that was painted and sculpted by several notable artists during her lifetime. There was a uh, Christopher Lee, This Is Your Life, that you can find online. And it's, you know, I was a couple days into research and like, uh, you know, the big reveal was like, and of course, here to like tell us about your childhood is your sister and your mother. And I was like, oh my God, Bellissima, the Countess Cardini. I can't believe I'm finally <laughs> going to see this woman. And it was just this little strega known as Italian lady who was just like, hey, <laughs> hello. <laughs> she, and she had a, she wasn't even like, you know, her family was from Italy. She, she like can date it back to Italy, but she had like a regular English accent. She was just like, oh, how's it going? I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> so at four years, old his parents separated and divorced a couple of years later and the the mother moved him to switzerland and he was enrolled in miss fisher's academy at Terratet, and he performed in his first role there as rumpelstiltskin which is cute Aww. and he already was talking like this can be <laughs> i will spin it to weave it into gold if you guess just my a name. six foot tall tiny man absolutely so They end up going back to London after a spell, and Lee attends Wagner's private school in Queensgate, and his mother married a banker. At nine years old, he was sent to a prep school in Oxford called Summerfield School, where he continued with acting. And And that was like uh, one of those, like, Oxford feeding schools, like a boarding Mm. school. This was like one of those famous boarding schools where they definitely... uh, haze the shit out of these kids and let them assault each other nonstop. Just a real nightmare zone, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> the point is, this was already putting him on the track to be with the best and brightest mm. in the English upper classes. So after that, he goes to Wellington College on a scholarship to study ancient Greek and Latin uh, and did not do much acting besides a small part in a school play. And he was beaten quite often at school for breaking the rules, including once for being beaten too often. He got beaten... <laughs> 
because he was being beaten so often. So I think it's hilarious, and I'm sure it was very sad, though, at the time. <laughs> if you ever wanted to see the fanciest little war crimes, you go to an English boarding school <laughs> right. like, at any point in history. Well, I'm a war man, so I'd love to go. <laughs> Uh, either way, after having trouble looking for... Excuse I'm sorry. me, you with the bayonet, you want some lemonade? It's just oh, me. I like that. Just, just a regular war person, not here for fighting. Hello, war person. Let me get back to me killings and I'll get you lemonade later. Right as rain, chap. <laughs> so, uh, at 17, he left Wellington with one year left to go, largely due to his father having gone bankrupt. And after having trouble looking for work, he decides to join his sister on holiday in the French Riviera. And on the way, uh, I love this. So he has so this many is, weird. This anecdote keeps popping up. But he just has so many weird factoids about him. Like there's just so many bizarre little things that I had to pick and choose which ones to go with. This is definitely one I wanted to pick. On the way to the French Riviera, he stops in Paris and witnesses the execution by guillotine of Eugene Weidman. And this is the last public execution performed in France. Then he makes it just. Popped in, caught that, and then he made his way to the Riviera. He stays with the Russian Mazarov family and lived among exiled princely families, which is, just sounds like his life is a fairy tale, mm-hmm. personally, right? It just sounds, it's like, this is like some kind of, uh, one might like write a book like this about someone traveling to the French Riviera and all these things happening. But either way, let's get into the World War II stuff, because that is some fascinating elements that's really going to shape his life like it shapes so many other people we've covered on the show. When the Second World War broke out, Lee volunteered to fight for the Finnish forces and was posted on guard duty a safe distance from the front lines. This he is worked- uh, yeah, oh, this story, as he tells it, is um, so war was breaking out across Europe and uh, the Russians were kind of making aggressions in northern Europe as part of that weird like alliance w- between Stalin and Hitler that did not go well, as historians will tell you. And he and his buddies, eager to, like, fight, you know, eager to get in the fight as their fathers did back during the Great War. Also, he had been kicked out of school for a while because he couldn't afford it. He was working menial office jobs. He just needed, you know, he wanted something to do. Went up to, with his friends, uh, you said Finland, right? Uh, Yes. So, Uh, yes. He went up to Finland. Uh, The only problem is, is that this was, they were fighting in the wintertime and him and his friends did not know how to ski which was the main method of infantry traversal at the time. So the Finnish resistance kind of just like patted them on the head and was like, well, you did pretty good and just sent them back to England. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he then works as an office clerk for the United States Lines, then for the pharmaceutical company Beecham's, then Home Guard, an armed citizen militia supporting the British Army, jumping around a lot. In other words, very complicated. This this whole part was very complicated to try to figure out exactly what was going on because he's just being moved from place to place to place. The point is, is uh, conscription is clearly around the corner. And so if you know you're going to have to get into the war anyway, you might as well enlist first. So at least you can do it on your own terms. And maybe, yeah, maybe get into a position that's not quite so uh, unfortunate, like (laughs) clerk work and stuff like that. But the sudden death of his father leads him to volunteer for the Royal Air Force. 
On his second-to-last training session for the Air Force, however, he suffered headaches and blurred vision and was diagnosed with a failure of his optic nerve and was told he'd never be able to fly again, which devastated Lee, making him feel useless. So he moved around from station to station, completely in limbo for a bit, until he decided to make more use of himself by applying to join the Royal Air Force Intelligence. And this is when he gets into some more fascinating work for the war. He was traveling all over the world, doing intelligence for missions. He was almost killed when his airfield was bombed in France and after tripping over one of his plane's live bombs. He was eventually promoted to flight lieutenant and even planned an assault on the rumored German Alpine fortress, which didn't obviously go down. Yet still, in his final days of the war, he was tasked with tracking down Nazi war criminals. Lee said, We were given dossiers of what they'd done and told to find them interrogate them as and in the darkness bind them no no it didn't say that but either way we were given dozens of what they done and told to find them interrogate them as much as we could and hand them over to the appropriate authority we saw these concentration camps some had been cleaned up some had not so i'm sure that was a horrific horrific time for him but also an important one for the work. Uh, it definitely seems to be track these people down. By this point, too, this is a big, big game changer for Christopher Lee's rest of his career. Because of his work in intelligence, because of his work in the war, he is now pretty fluent in French, Italian, and German. He retires from the Royal Air Force in 1946, and this is where we're going to get to him actually getting into acting. Lee returns from the war. He doesn't really know what he wants to do. He wants to not go back into office work. He does not like working a nine to five. I hear you, Chris. I mean, like so many of his generation, like after being that bombarded with like actual combat and adrenaline fueled conflict, the idea, like it's just, you can't sit still enough to even work an office job like that. And then he also doesn't want to continue to work in the armed forces either though. So one day he's having lunch with his cousin, Niccolo Caradini who would go on to become the Italian ambassador to Britain. And Caradini said this, Why don't you become an actor, Christopher? Niccolo introduced him to his friend, Filippo del Guidice, who was a film producer and the head of Two Cities Films. Lee said Guidice, quote, looked me up and down and concluded that I was just what the industry had been looking for. Which is a bit odd because he's going to come into some issues. How tall is he again? Six, seven? Six, five. Six, five. Uh, So, Two Cities Films, They're part of the Rank Organization, a British entertainment conglomerate, the largest film company in the UK at the time. And through that, he attended the Company of Youth, which was commonly known as the Rank Charm School. It was an acting school for young contract players such as Lee. This school was established to manufacture stars, much like the Hollywood studio system at the time. It was all a big machine uh, back in those days. I want to derail for a second with an anecdote sure. that I uh, he gave this anecdote during a BBC broadcast of Desert Island Discs in which all of the records that he chose were uh, opera. <laughs> he just loved opera. And either from his experience with intelligence services or the fact that his own family had a massive pedigree with opera, uh, his great-grandmother was Marie Carandini, uh, the Tasmanian, like, I, I uh, what was, like the Tasmanian angel, she was called. And, like, uh, his side of the family actually, like, created one of the first major opera houses in the Australian New Zealand uh, area. Uh, his mother was a singer. He was just, like, he just loved singing, and he loved opera because of his family. And apparently during a stay in Stockholm... 
uh, he was singing a bunch of drinking songs and uh, Jussi Bjurling, uh, then known as the uh, Caruso of the North, actually approached him and told him that he should study under him and join the Stockholm Opera House and he would have a career as a baritone. But at the time, he was dead broke and he uh, was told that he would not be able, his, his room and board would not be paid for by the Opera House. So he regretfully had to turn it down. And he claims that's one of his biggest regrets, that he like, that the, the love of singing and the, the quote unquote gift of the instrument of his voice was never utilized to its fullest extent. And so from that day forward, he just like held, a, you know, he held a torch for his would have been opera career. And he gets to get a little of that going, though. I mean, I think he, his stuff, especially his first metal album, is very symphonic as much as it is a metal album. And you do get a little of that opera sensibility, even though he's a much older man and clearly not going to be able to, like, belt it out. Oh, you can see so many clips of him belt out some opera tunes throughout his career. Uh, you mm. can. Uh, there's one I found of him just... Actually, uh, Mary, um, let's we'll throw throw this in there. Uh, here, uh, this is him belting out "O Solo Mio." Yeah, golden pipes. Absolutely. So. He's struggling at first, as most actors do. He ends up making his film debut in the gothic romance Corridor of Mirrors in 1947. His height is an issue from the get-go. The director ends up putting him at a table in a nightclub. He only has one line. Not a big, not a big outing at first. If I remember correctly, he's actually, like, shot from the back, even. He's, like, not even, <laughs> like, his face isn't even in frame. Because he's so tall. And, but, uh, you know, he's been paying his dues for, like, ten years at this point. You know, sweeping mm-hmm. up backstages, holding up cues cards like the real kind of grunt pa intern work like genuine do paying with throughout the theater and film industry lee also did some uncredited work during this time he was a spear carrier in Laurence olivier's film version of hamlet he felt his breakthrough that however was in 1952 when he wasn't Duncan- supposed to be on the set of hamlet Oh really? Yeah, in a in a in the same interview where he talks about his Desert Island discs, he talks about how he just wanted to see Olivier on set and was like brought in through a back door and as all the extras were like clambering in, he kind of just like stood just, on the like, stair. Just like grabbed his spear really quick and yeah, was yeah. just like, "I'm a spear carrier." And they're like, "You don't have to say what you are in the scene. You just carry the spear." I'm sorry. Spear carrier here. It's the, Wait, all the extras right? are yelling lights, 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 <laughs> and you can see a young Christopher Lee in the mix in that movie. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, he felt his breakthrough, however, was in 1952 when Douglas Fairbanks Jr. started putting him in his films he made at the British National Studios, including John Huston's Oscar-nominated Moulin Rouge, and also a Buster Keaton film, which, quote, proved an excellent training ground. And this is where we get to the hammer years. Lee said, 
I was around a long time, near nearly ten, ten years. Initially, I was told I was too tall to be an actor. That's a quite fascist remark to make. It's like saying you're too short to play the piano. <laughs> I thought, right, I'll show you. At the beginning, I didn't know anything about the technique of working in front of a camera. But during those ten years, I did the one thing that's so vitally important today. I watched, I listened, I learned. So when the time came, I was ready, oddly enough, to play a character who said nothing. Referring, of course, to Frankenstein's monster, this first Hammer film production. Let's give a little background on Hammer films, shall we? Uh, this was definitely interesting to me. I didn't... Hammer's like British trauma almost, or like... Um, it's a little... It's tro- in a way, it is, but it's also like... A little more mainstream. A little more main. It's kind of it meets in the middle of the Universal Classic Monsters meets Troma, yeah. kind of in a way. Hammer Film Productions Limited, a British film company based in London, founded in 1934 by comedian and businessman William Hines. Hines' stage name was Will Hammer, and that's how it got its name. The company only lasted a few years, however, before entering bankruptcy, but was later resurrected by his family friend James Carreras and Hines' son, Anthony, with the goal to supply, quote, quota quickies, which were cheaply made domestic films, and they were made to fill the gaps in cinema schedules in support of more expensive features. They would be like that movie you'd see before the big movie. Or You're talking about would- the literal definition of a B-movie, because yes. back in the days, there were second features on almost every major theater yes. ticket so totally literally just filling in for all those empty slots in movie theaters the b picture as we already mentioned lee's first film for hammer was the curse of frankenstein in 1957 playing the monster it was Ooh, notable he looked goopy Ooh, he looked yeah. real goopy covered in mortician's wax just just uh, i mean you know though it's 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 almost like uh one to one with Boris Karlov where it's just like hey you're tall and spooky looking we're going to cover you in shit and you're going to just look weird and this not only was it notable for being his first film with hammer but it was also the film on which he met actor and future friend peter cushing the two would go on to be in over 20 films together and be close friends lee said he was a wonderful human being and a brilliant actor He did things other people simply couldn't do, and I loved him, I really did. I remember something Boris Karloff said to me, which does apply to Peter and myself. He said, find something that other actors can't do or won't do, and if you can make an impact doing that, you'll never be forgotten. Cushing, obviously, if you're not familiar with Hammer Horror, uh, his biggest role, I think, in mainstream American movies was Grand Moff Tarkin in in Star Wars. And famously Which is amazing because, of course, Lee ends up in the in the in the franchise as well in a similar role. And uh, it's very funny that these two were such lifelong friends, because once we get to the Dracula movies, Cushing plays Van Helsing. So mm-hmm. most of their on screen time together is them just like stabbing the shit out of each other over <laughs> yeah. and over and over again. <laughs> After this, he becomes, like you just said, famous as Dracula in the Hammer films, starting with what is known as Horror of Dracula in the States. It was just Dracula in Britain, and it was released back in 1958. His take leaned more on the sexuality of the character, unlike the universal Dracula. I love this quote from Empire Magazine because it's so funny, especially thinking about Christopher Lee the way I see Christopher Lee. Lee's Dracula is a force of nature, red-eyed, blood dripping from fangs, often in the grip of rage. He's hypnotic, physically powerful, well-spoken, but Lee also understood, crucially, that an important layer from Bram Stoker's novel has been missing from Lugosi's performance. 
Sexuality. Lee's Dracula is a rampant sex fiend, using that stare to make buxom ladies everywhere come over a little faint. That's... So I feel like the heavy <laughs> lifting of the Hammer film's sexy Dracula is the buxom women always heaving in low-cut nightgowns as... Yeah. Let's just say let's just say this. Uh, gargantuan giraffe of a man, Christopher Lee, just like... <laughs> Like, climbs in through their window and just towers over them, sniffs their neck a little while they're just like. <gasps> um, the, the sexiness is just, yeah, he just sniffs a lot of necks, just a lot of mm-hmm. like very sensual neck sniffing. And usually in these Hammer films, he would barely show up. It was always about mm-hmm. the secondary characters. It was always cheaply made and it would always kind of culminate in a big blowout fight with either Cushing's Van Helsing or other secondary characters. And what's funny to me is, you know, he's such an intimidating figure. He's such this, like, you know, just in every movie, he's literally several heads taller than anyone else on camera. The, or, you know, the the shot literally has to get pulled back whenever he's in frame just so we can see him. And all the Dracula rules apply to Hammer Dracula. So, like... They'll, you know, he'll like loom over someone. I, you know, they'll add the blood contacts to him. He'll be dripping with uh, fake blood, which in the Hammer films are the exact consistency and color of like red poster paint. It is not believable blood at all. It is like someone spilled some Crayola washable kids paint everywhere. And then someone will just like literally hold up two candlesticks in the shape of a cross and will be like, oh, fuck, never mind. Yeah. Ooh, owie. <laughs> Like it's like when you think about it, Dracula can be killed by anyone with a wooden stick. Like yeah. in the Hammer films, it always culminates in that. And so Lee quickly comes to resent playing the character and being known for the character. Hammer gives very little to work with, as you said, and even Lee said he refused to speak any dialogue from the s- script in the second film. He just like hisses and stuff. The screenwriter does claim there were actually lines in the script, but Lee said. I read the script and I said, I won't say anything in this picture. I can't possibly say these lines. They're not only unsayable, but they'll have everybody rolling about for the wrong reasons. He talks a lot about how delicate it is to actually get horror across and how he feels like Hammer failed a lot on stuff, but he does become iconic. After that, however, Lee also claims that he was emotionally blackmailed into playing track. In the oh, I'm films. glad you have this. Yeah, he... he uh, he said the Hammer people would call him up and say, think of the people you're putting out of work. That's the only reason I did the last few Draculas. Like, they, they would essentially just be like, we we already sold it. We already sold it saying that you were going to star in it. You have to do it. All these people got to work. All this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, he, he, he said, that's the only reason I did the last few Draculas. I didn't want to be the reason for 100 people not working. So he plays Dracula in seven films for Hammer. He plays Dracula in some other films as well, but most notably the Hammer movies. And I'm sorry, di- are you talking about the French comedy My Uncle is a Vampire? Yes, I'm talking about the French comedy My Uncle is a Vampire, which we did watch clips of during our <laughs> Patreon study session, Sunday, 5 p.m., $15 there. Either way, um, uh, he needs to get out of out from under the the uh, shadow of Dracula and, and become his own man as an actor and both Britain and eventually Hollywood. Lee continues to play heavies, though, for Hammer and others. Uh, and, and at least, if nothing else, I think he's always going to be known as being a heavy. I mean, Saruman, Dooku, 
Dracula, he's always kind of on that side, and the, the villain in Wicker Man, I mean, he's always on that side of it, of things, but still, just wanted to not just be Dracula, and especially not B-movie Dracula. So, he, uh, he ends up being the mummy in The Mummy, Rasputin in Rasputin the Mad Monk, and Sir Henry Baskerville in The Hound of the Baskervilles. What broke him out of heavy jail, however, at least what he claims, was when he got the part of Mycroft, Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother in Billy Wilder's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Just showed that he had a bit more range that he could, didn't have to just be the villain. And I think he ended up being the villain mostly. He has that awesome deep voice and that abs- that amazing height to him. That it just, it feels so natural. His last couple of films for Hammer were occult films. And he did have an interest in the occult. Not, not in a sense that he wanted to practice it, but maybe more of a macabre desire no, to be educated on it there's interview footage of him like black and white where he just looks dead to the camera and it's like oh it's real <laughs> if god has power then surely satan does as well he name drops anton levey in this interview mm-hmm. he uh talks about how oh, he had to like do a demonic baptism to a newborn baby and like <laughs> at, b- before they started sh- for a movie obviously and before they started shooting he asked the parents like are you are you okay with this and the parents are like, yeah, whatever. And he was like, truly society is lost. <laughs> like he, um, and because of his, you know, tie to the macabre, like he got a lot of fan letters. He kind of dealt with that community a lot and took it very seriously. Yeah, he later in life would tell people like, do not practice the occult. It is dangerous. It is not a thing to be trifled with. And, you know, I, I'm not I'm not an advocate for occult practices. So the movies he comes known, becomes known for, though, are uh, The Devil Rides Out, which is considered by many to be Hammer's crowning achievement. I want to check it out. It's this creepy occult movie. And To the Devil, A Daughter. Then there's the unfortunate Fu Manchu movies that uh, womp, womp. Jake and I definitely watched a couple. I mean, I, you know, I, times have changed. And he he is in bad stereotype makeup, but I will, at least will say he didn't try an accent or anything like that. He just talks like Christopher Lee. He just is wearing the most ridiculous costume ever. But who gives a shit? Let's move on to The Wicker Man, Lee's personal favorite film he's done, and another big move to break out of the Dracula image, yet still he plays a scary villain. Lee meets with screenwriter Anthony Schaefer, and the two agree to work together. Then Schaefer decides he'd love to make a movie that was like the opposite of the Hammer films, and that it didn't center on, and, and that it wouldn't center on the occult, it would center on old religion. And there was a book written by a guy named David Penner called Ritual, which seemed to do just that. In it, a devout Christian policeman is called to investigate the murder of a young girl in a rural village. Lee and Schaefer buy the rights from Penner. Schaefer ends up using only the very broad strokes from the novel for the screenplay. And Lee acts in the film for either very little or totally for free. I I couldn't remember on this one. Uh, The stories I've heard said that he was so set on the film and obviously how it kind of got him out of the Dracula hole that he Mm -hmm. did work for free, apparently. Lee said on why this is his favorite movie, quote, First of all, it was an extraordinarily unusual story. That was one reason. It's the best script I've ever read still. It's a story which is romantic, erotic, very frightening, but totally logical. And it was written for me, the part. There have been other parts written for me in mind, quite a few, but this was by far the best. It was outstanding. Lee also had this to say for, about the role. Summer Isle has to be a gracious That's host. That's not his voice. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was uh, I got lost there for a second. Lee said this about the role. Summer Isle has to be a gracious host. 
He has to be a nobleman. He has to be the ruler of the community. He has to be charming. He has to be apparently very helpful. But at the same time, he has to be totally lethal. And he does dance that line really well, I must say. I did quite enjoy finally sitting down and watching The Wicker Man. Of course, the original one. I think this weekend I'm probably going to go watch the Nick Cage one because I'm absolutely morbidly curious as to... uh, the bees! I tried to watch Wicker Man, but, like, knowing the ending, it's so, like, every scene is just, like, this poor cop just being like, oh, you ain't gonna murder me, are you? And just another <laughs> freaky town person being like, murder you? Certainly not. We're just weirdos. Definitely not gonna end up murdering you. <laughs> right. I, I It made me want to rewatch Midsummer. I feel like if Midsummer was not inspired by the original Wicker Man, I don't know what was. It's, it cannot It, it not does be. do that opposite thing. It's like it's not about this dark, creepy coven kind of situation. It's pretty, vibrant island, a festival, um, you know, uh, a lot of happy people. They just need help growing their apples, man. Yeah, just, why don't you just help, help these apples. people grow their apples? They're dancing, they're singing, and 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 yet terrible things happen. I think they could have done for some more macabre moments earlier on. There were some kind of like, ugh, like just kind of weird throw you off moments, but a lot of it, I, I don't know, maybe it just doesn't stand the test of time, some of it, because I feel like, I feel like, Whereas Midsummer really built the whole time on the creepiness, I feel like it was really the last 30 minutes of the original Wicker Man that is the reason for the season. But either way, we will talk about, too, how Lee was kind of frustrated about the whole outcome. He loved this movie, and yet, for reasons not totally known, the intended version of the film was butchered, with big scenes missing, which came to the surprise of Lee when he finally saw it like opening night. He was like, where's the rest of this movie? There were all these characters that were supposed to have scenes with the police officer. His scene with the police officer initially was way longer. They removed a ton of stuff. I was happy that it was cut down to an hour and 40 minutes just for my own, you know, needing to watch it in order to do this. But it was supposed to be much longer. It was supposed to be much more of like an epic I think, if I remember correctly, the movie was given to Roger Corman for the American release, and then he uh-huh. chopped an additional, like, 13, 17 minutes off of that. Yeah, yeah, so it, it's like, yeah, he was very upset. He's always said, like, that was his favorite movie he ever done, but, it, like, the movie you see is not the movie he did. It's kind of this weird double-edged sword. Uh, 1974, he gets, I think, one of his biggest, at least from a pop culture perspective, I, I don't know, the Hammer Horror films were super noteworthy but i guess for my sake this is the first time i'm like oh shit that he was that guy uh Mm. he played francisco scaramanga in Mm -hmm. the roger moore film uh the man with the golden gun based on the novel by ian fleming uh obviously the creator of james bond who happened to be christopher lee's step cousin yes i also like that lee said i played i played him like the dark side of bond like he kind of wanted to play like shadow bond was his approach to the character, which is cool. Like, he's charming, he's cool, he's he's got all these Bond things, but he's just, like, the anti He's, like, the evil version of that type of person. It's the gimmick with Francisco Scaramanga. In, I mean, obviously, Lee delivers so hard, just, like, with his, like, kind of presence. He is, he does have the debonair, uh, deadly aura of James Bond does, and he does kind of have this, uh, you know, he is a good foil. There's a reason why, you know... People remember Scaramanga as one of the great Bond villains, but oh my God. In the in the original Ian Fleming book, uh, Ian Fleming uh, wanted to cast Christopher Lee as Dr. No in the first, uh, you know, in that James Bond movie, but had forgotten to mention it to the movie's producers until it was too late, so Lee missed out on that. 
uh, which, you know, considering how Fu Manchu turned out, maybe that was for the best. (laughs) But uh, in the book, Scaramanga is just this, like, West Indian assassin guy who, like, happens to own a gold uh, single-action Colt revolver. In the movie... He, the golden gun, you know, the, you know, from playing so many hours of GoldenEye back in the 90s, this legendary weapon is a single shot firearm that's assembled from a cigarette case as mm-hmm. the handle, a cufflink for the trigger, a cigarette lighter for the receiver, and a golden fountain pen as the barrel that he has to assemble and disassemble every, it's so goofy. <laughs> it's incredibly goofy. And... Uh, more so than Scaramanga, the movie itself is complete, like, knickknack, fucking deplane, deplane guy knickknack is just all, Hervé Villaiche is just all over this movie as this little imp figure who's his second in command. Uh, you know, the, the movie ends with Scaramanga luring Bond to his, um, assassin fun house in his island like it's soup you know obviously the roger moore films were known for being goofier but like oofy doof like you know if you if you knew nothing about the the man with the golden gun except like the the lore or the you know the 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 infamy of it from like other bond media you will be floored by christopher lee Knickknack uh, and the entire proceedings of the movie. I also love this anecdote. Wouldn't you know? Four years before he plays that role, he ends up accidentally being in a softcore porn movie called Eugenie back in 1970. Lee said, "I was told it was about the Marquis de Sade. I flew out to Spain for one day's work, playing the part of a narrator. I had to wear a crimson dinner jacket. There were lots of people behind me. They all had the clothes on." There didn't seem to be anything peculiar or strange. A friend said, Do you know you are in a film in on in Old Compton Street? In those days, that was where the Macintosh Brigade watched their films. Very funny, I said. So I crept along there, heavily disguised in dark glasses and scarf, and found the cinema, and there was my name. I was furious. There was a huge row. When I had left Spain that day, everyone behind me had taken their clothes off. <laughs> So he just came in, did the narrator part, he left, and they all just got to fucking, and he had no idea he was in a softcore porn movie until, uh, year, like, a year later or whatever it was. Uh, either way, it was time for him to break from the shackles Wait, of British film. one more thing before his big move. In 1975, he was promoting one of his uh, movies in Cleveland, probably The Man with the Golden Gun, if he was over in America, and uh, his PR person just like said, oh, hey, Muhammad Ali is in town promoting mm-hmm. uh, the Thrilla in Manila fight. Hell and yeah. he's a big fan of yours and would love to meet you. And so in this hotel in Cleveland, he got to just sit down and chat with the greatest of all time, Muhammad <laughs> Ali. And, uh, you know, he eventually ended up uh, going to L.A. and was watching the fight itself. At Hugh Hefner's, you know, the Playboy Mansion. And, uh, you know, it was a big celebrity party. Other famous boxers were there. And at the end of the fight, uh, which Muhammad Ali famously won, uh, a reporter shoved a microphone under Ali's face and said, do you have anything to say to your fans? To which Ali replied, yes, I just want to say that I won this fight for Christopher Lee, who I know is out there watching me right now. And everybody immediately turned and looked at him. And uh, (laughs) one of the boxers was like, how the hell did you do that? To which Christopher (laughs) Lee replied, 
magic, black magic. <laughs> and everybody laughed. That's amazing. Insane. I love it. What a life. I know. He had the crazy. I mean, we're just throwing these things out there like they're commonplace, but this is nuts. He had such a wild trajectory. It, and we haven't even gotten into Star Wars and stuff we're about to because he's about to move to Hollywood. Lee said, I became totally disillusioned with the film, British film industry. Richard, Richard Widmark told me, you're wasting your time here. They'll always be asking you to play the same sort of characters. You'll get bored and so will the audience. You must come to the States. So I did and my life changed. Uh, by the way, he's about to be on SNL with like Aykroyd and those guys. It's completely nuts. His episode of Saturday Night Live is considered one of the greats. From that original cast, it's uh, even the opening, um, the opening monologue. He just has this like very, you know, he knows exactly what role he's playing, and he's like, you know, playing up like his very stuffy Britishness. Uh, I, I swear to God, did you mention that one of your favorite like uh, John Belushi things was uh, the thing that wouldn't leave? That is a good one. I don't know if I have mentioned that's that from. That's from the Christopher Lee episode. Uh, That's great. Meatloaf was the musical guest, and he oh, literally yeah. brings them on. It's like, and I implore everyone to bring a round of applause to meet Loaf. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so this is back in 1978. Lee said, it was without a doubt the most hilarious experience I've ever had, because I was working with Belushi, Murray, and Aykroyd at the height of their powers. I've got a photograph of which I'm very proud of me and John Belushi, who signed it to Chris. You are the best in the biz from John Belushi, the second best. (laughs) SNL was always the most important thing I've ever done in my career because people like Steven Spielberg were in the audience thinking, hang on, this man can be funny. As a result, Spielberg asked me to do 1941. I was asked to appear in Airplane at the same time as the doctor that Leslie Nielsen eventually played. But people said, don't touch it. You're already making the greatest comedy of all time. So I said, no, that was a big mistake. So yeah, he was offered that. If you've actually watched 1941 and you would have, and you had the choice to like turn back the time machine and just star an airplane instead, that would have been the money move. That would have been, but I, I I also can't imagine uh, it not being uh, Leslie Nielsen. So I'm glad he didn't take that role. His first film in America was Airport 77, which I believe is the disaster series that Airplane is based on. Uh, not, kind of, not really. Um, kind of, not really. It's But it is an Airplane disaster series. That one's like the third one in it. It's, either way. It's, it has... There was just a lot of those kinds of movies coming out, and therefore Airplane had to parody... You know, all of those. Okay, so this is this is the I had to do some wiki diving, but when this came up in the research. So the original uh so airport is based on the same kind of series of books and written works of a guy named Arthur Haley, who also did uh the I believe it's called like Zero Hour or whatever, mm-hmm. the thing that yeah. did inspire the Former Air Force guy gets, you know, has to fly a plane after everyone gets sick from the fish meal. Right. And Airport was another thing he made along the similar vein. And Airport 77 was not like the original author was not involved, but it was definitely part of that same. Yeah, it was calling, you know, this is the 70, the 1977 reboot of that classic disaster film. Uh, But that one in 77 involves a. 747 airliner that sinks to the bottom of the Bermuda Triangle and the crew has to escape from the ocean. Yes. So it's more kind of ocean based, 
which is fun. I had to waste my time looking that up, and now I had to waste <laughs> yeah, your you time telling waste about your, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Through the 80s and 90s, Lee gets steady work in Hollywood, most notably in the film Jenna as Muhammad Ali Jenna. Not, uh, no, not, not noteworthy, actually. Well, well, it's noteworthy for Lee himself. It's, he plays the founder of Pakistan. He felt it was his best performance as, quote, an incorruptible man of great integrity and vision. Oh, I'm sorry. An incorruptible man of great integrity and vision. It's notable for our episode because he does believe that is his best work. And so I definitely want to check some more of that film out. But the uh, the controversy of him, you know, not to not to obviously not to, you know, the man was in his 70s at the time. I'm not going to like ding him, but like. The idea that he was doing brownface playing this, like, famous mm. Pakistani Muslim leader, like, it just, it was too hot to get wide distribution. So even though mm. he acted his balls off and he played, like, you know, for the first time a true, like, uh, historic hero in a film and not, an, a, you know, the, a devil-worshipping Dracula man, and he holds it very close to his heart, Jinnah did not make waves in the greater film uh, sure. world. I had never heard of it, so I yeah. believe you there. Either way, possibly his most famous role, Lee plays Saruman in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Lee said, At the time I read it, I wanted to play Gandalf. Who wouldn't? But they thought I was too old, so I played Saruman, which is in many ways immensely important, because Sauron is just an eye, so Saruman is the one and only total adversary to, of the Fellowship. Everything that happens, he's responsible for. He was, however, puzzled uh, when he did not appear in the theatrical release of the third film. He did end up showing up in the extended version, but he was just like, nobody wanted to know what happened to my character. Everybody I'm, I'm, wanted to know what happened to his I'm character. I'm at the top of this tower. Everything's going to shit. And then we start the third movie, and I'm just not even in the, in the picture. And I do love his scene. It has a lot of symbolic importance as well that it completely flew over my head that Peter Jackson we're going to get into it but that Peter Jackson is the last one to stab him through the heart with a wooden stake because Peter Jackson was such a huge fan of his hammer hammer uh Dracula work well you, way, know, you know that are you about to tell that anecdote I am about to tell that oh anecdote. boy before I get it's a long one too it's, or it's a long quote but I love this story it was it's so beautiful Jackson has some really beautiful quotes about Christopher Lee just all told. But either way, as we, I think we mentioned it already, but I just want to maybe re say it if we hadn't. Lee reread the Lord of the Rings trilogy every year. He could quote entire passages. And uh, you also have Peter Jackson. It was so funny because Lee's this huge Tolkien fanboy. Peter Jackson is this huge Christopher Lee fanboy. Loved his horror films. But he also told that Christopher Lee didn't like to talk about him. I don't know if we've talked about that that much. Lee has definitely been open about his Hammer film past and in interviews and stuff. It's not like he refused to talk about it. But, you know, I think it's one of those where he just didn't, like, love talking about it. Which, by the way, was really funny because near, near the end of shooting his stuff for the trilogy, Peter Jackson was like, hey, um... Can you sign a couple things for me? And <laughs> and he hadn't said shit about the Hammer films up until that point. And Christopher was like, sure. And literally pulled out like 
all these VHSs and posters and all this hammer bullshit. It was just like, eh? and Lee was just like, took a deep breath. It's like, all right, fucker, I'll sign your, your hammer stuff. Because, of course, I mean, Peter Jackson started out in horror, of course, and every horror and all that stuff, so, and B film. But either way, uh, this was a story from Peter Jackson that I just absolutely loved. So I had to, had to put it all down here. Jackson said, uh, and this was the day that his death scene was filmed. Uh, so on that day, all onset crew were ordered not to make any smart arse comments and use and use of the terms wooden stake or impaled was forbidden. I just told Chris that we needed to grab a quick shot of him after Saruman had landed on some spiky machinery. So Chris lies on his back with our camera pointed down on him and waits in stony silence while the makeup team glue what is clearly a wooden stake onto his chest. With my excitement level maxing out, I grabbed the bottle of fake blood and squirted it over him myself. We then started the camera rolling to film Saruman uh, taking his final gasps. I'm looking at the monitor thinking, my God, I'm going to get away with this. He hasn't said a thing. I call action and there's nothing but silence. Then Chris suddenly stares directly into the lens and in the weary tones of a very stern but kind at heart old headmaster says, This is strangely familiar. Twenty years I looked up and saw Peter Cushing. Now all the way down here in New Zealand I look up and see Peter Jackson. Then without pause he goes straight into his Saruman performance. It doesn't get better than that. Oh, okay. I love it. Yeah, I have another. I have a, another story, but yeah, that yeah, was yeah. one of them. That's a good I, one. How cool is like, just such a cool moment in filmmaking, all told. Like you've got this person who you know he does. He kind of resents his uh, backstory with his success in these B movies. You've got this director who's making this giant epic film franchise that was so heavily inspired by Christopher Lee's work getting him in his movie, but Christopher Lee, it wraps around, because Christopher Lee is this huge Tolkien fan, and there's having that beautiful moment together, and it's also so funny, because he's like trying to almost trick him into it, and then right at the last second, he actually acknowledges what's happening. It's just such a cool story. It reminds really me well of a told. thing um, that, uh, in behind-the-scenes footage for, Atta- for Star Wars Attack of the Clones, Dooku has a confrontation with uh, Obi-Wan and uh, Anakin, and then uh, there's also he also fights Yoda in that movie, and uh, obviously so much of it was CG'd. So there's a like little mannequin stand in Yoda so that they know where to look. And one of the crew put fake vampire teeth on the Yoda model, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's footage of a dejected Christopher Lee being like, "Oh George, <laughs> George, you promised me you wouldn't do this to me." Ah. <sighs> I'm uh, yes, very, very funny, George. I would like to say, too, that Peter Jackson talked about how over some drunken nights, years after the trilogy was made and everything, he was able to finally convince Lee that his legacy mattered as Dracula and inspired so many people, as I have already mentioned, and actually helped him, I think, come to terms a little bit more and gain peace with like that being what he was known for, at least for a large chunk of his career, you know, and really throughout his life and so, uh, to some degree. But I think that was really cool. The other cool story, I didn't do that. I didn't write it all down. I just remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so cool. And this is another drunken night they're hanging out. And Peter Jackson um, was talking to him about how much he inspired everybody with his stuff. And he, uh, he, he said, you know, P- you inspired me, you inspired Steven Spielberg. And he was like, 
He was like, no, I did. What are you talking about? And he was like, oh, yeah, you don't think you inspired Steven Spielberg? So Jackson on the slide texts Steven Spielberg. Or no, no. Jackson makes Lee film a greeting from him to Steven Spielberg. Peter Jackson then emails the video to Spielberg, hoping that during their meeting they'll hang out. He has to convince Christopher Lee to sit down for one more drink with him before they depart for the evening, just hoping Spielberg will get back to him. And at the very last minute he does. And he shows Lee this video from Steven Spielberg gushing about how much he inspired him and just how amazing of a performer he is and how much he loves Christopher Lee's work. And it was just this like, and Lee's like dumbfounded, like cannot believe he's had this effect on people. It's just a really beautiful story about a person I think, you know, whatever happens in your career, sometimes the thing that you're most embarrassed about or, or what have you, sometimes it has the biggest impact on so many people's lives for the for good, you know? And uh, so never take for granted, maybe, um, some of the goofier things <laughs> that I you mean, might do to make somebody's day a little bit better. Well, it's so the the duality of Christopher Lee is the goofiness and the darkness because the story yeah. I thought you were going to tell was um, there's a video from like the, you know, behind the scenes documentary for uh, Lord of the Rings where uh, they show that uh, Peter Jackson was blocking the scene in which Wormtongue uh, stabs Saruman in the back. And Jackson goes into like an explanation about how like, you know, he gets stabbed in the back and he has to go like, ah, gah, ooh, ah. Um, and Lee responds by saying, have you any idea what kind of noise happens when somebody's stabbed in the back? Because I do. And that just silenced the entire crew. And if you look at that scene, it's a much more subdued performance of someone whose lungs were unexpectedly punctured. Ha, huh, very cool. I love it. All right, let's talk a little bit about Star Wars and Tim Burton, shall we? Uh, so, of course, Chris Release's next big role was Count Dooku. Oh, did we just bowl over his performance in Gremlins 2? Yes, we did bowl over Gremlins 2. I'm glad you brought it up. I loved his performance in Gremlins He was in Gremlins 2. Listen to our Gremlins episode if you want to know more about Gremlins. He's so good in Gremlins 2. It's one of the scientists. I love it as the evil scientist. It's not that he's the evil scientist. He's the evil scientist that immediately meets the brain gremlin and is just like... Yeah. Ah, appear. I am not freaked. Like, yes, let's do business. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in Teen Wolf. One of my, my favorite moments in a movie is when uh, the werewolf happens at the basketball game and the ref just look. everyone's silent. The ref just looks around and just goes, play ball. <laughs> like, that's what you would do if a man turned into a giant wolf monster. You just shrug your shoulders and be like, play ball. <laughs> uh, my favorite moment in Teen Wolf is when his best friend, when he has to tell his best friend that he's a werewolf and the best friend's like, whoa, you're not gay, are you? And Michael J. <laughs> Fox like, no, 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 dude, I'm just a werewolf. <laughs> Either way. God, the 80s, huh? Either way. Uh, yeah, so Count Dooku he uh, he d actually did most of the swordplay himself, apparently. He actually, I don't know if he still holds this world record, but at least at one point, he held the world record for doing the most sword fights in movies. And he is 79 when he plays this role. It is pretty unbelievable. And yeah, solid job, really cool. I, I mean, I don't have a ton on on his Star Wars. Uh, the days. the role of Dooku was like uh, originally going to be like basically, if you know the character Asajj Ventress, who shows up in the Clone Wars cartoon, it was supposed to be this like 
cool assassin lady. And then once Lee, once George Lucas was like, oh, I'm going to get Christopher Lee, the idea of this like regal former soldier that has like, you know, strayed from the the loyalty to the Jedi Order kind of came into fruition. He was given that cool curved lightsaber handle, like kind of looking like an old scimitar from the Ottoman Empire. And like he has a ton of gravity, but like oofy doof, it is very silly watching him like ride that speeder bike. <laughs> like kind of just like you can tell he's just having fun behind a lot of green screens. Uh-huh. And um he talks about how it was the most green screen he'd ever worked on, and that's including Lord of the Rings. Uh, and that fight scene where you can, you know, for the sh- for the waist up shots, it's clearly a very old man swinging a prop around. And then in the far away shots, it's a much shorter, much younger body doing cool flips as the badly after effects head of Christopher Lee is struggling to stay on that <laughs> neck motion target. <laughs> And after that, he also gets uh, close with Tim Burton and ends up doing uh, a small role in Sleepy Hollow. And after that, uh, much larger ones in Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Ooh, Factory. Very good creepy dentist acting. Corpse Bride, Alice in Wonderland, just a bunch of stuff together. That's really where he finds himself at the end of his film career. He working loves on the biggest franchises. Working with Tim Burton, you know, just really accomplished in Hollywood, accomplished in the in British cinema. Uh, because he's tied to so many big franchises at this point, and he's like kind of one of the last surviving members of a very esteemed era for British uh, thespianship. Um, he gets knighted for his contributions to culture and charity, and he gets the BAFTA Fellowship Award, which you can see his acceptance speech, and he's very humble and like you know he's clearly getting on in years and it's like very heartwarming if you watch that video uh lee said making films has never just been a job to me it's my life i have some interests outside of acting i sing and i've written books for instance but acting is what keeps me going it's what i do it gives life purpose i'm realistic about the amount of work i can get at my age but i take what i can even voiceovers and narration did a ton of voice work by the way i mean of course with that voice it's so distinctive and fantastic. He has a lovely voice that I butchered doing an impression of throughout this episode, but I stuck to it. Actually, I think it's, pr- I mean, just, you know, not, not tune your horn. Like, if this wasn't, if you weren't the co-host of this podcast, I'd say, that's a damn good Christopher Lee. <laughs> so let's get to it. He's now 90. Let's get to the metal years. <laughs> Which I think is uh, the coolest thing about him is that he was putting metal albums out, like, way late in his life, and... Uh, Such a cool turn for him. His first foray into the realm of heavy metal was a duet with the lead vocalist of the Italian symphonic power metal outfit, Rhapsody of Fire, on a song called The Magic of the Wizard's Dream, (laughs) which I think is the best. Uh, Also, uh, this leads to him performing as a narrator and backing vocalist on the band's four albums. Those albums are Symphony of Enchanted Lands 2, The Dark Secret, Triumph or Agony, The Frozen Tears of Angels, and From Chaos to Eternity. He also lent his voice to Man of War's remake of their first album, Battle Hymns, replacing Orson Welles' role. Uh, he, he took over uh, as Orson Welles, of course, since passed away. This is back in 2010. He also did a metal version of a song from the opera Carmen with a band called Inner Terrestrials. Then he releases his own metal album, 
Charlemagne by the Sword and the Cross, which told the story of Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor. Just just, just dropping some tunes about his great-great-great-great-grandpappy. It's fine. And, yeah, he said of Charlemagne, he was the father of Europe and responsible for carving the map as it is today. By attempting to unify the people of Europe and take them out of the dark ages of ignorance and chaos, he also created death and destruction. Fantastic shit. It's also, it's on Spotify. Check it out. But, uh, all of his albums are, all three of them. His third album is a covers album, but the first two are these story-telling, fascinating, like, historical. And it, you actually learn quite a bit from listening to it. I really enjoyed checking it out. It was very, very fun. Uh, he didn't put out an album, but there was, like, a, a Christmas EP where he sings songs like Jingle Hell. <laughs> Which is uh, just, you can see a video of him presenting it in his classic, uh, classy, he like refuses to wink. I love that he is just like 100% sincere in all this. Hell yeah. Uh, he also, we also mentioned he had, he has books, The Lord of Misrule, the autobiography of Christopher Lee, by the way, which is $600 on hardcover. Oh my God. And yeah. some other stuff like that. But either way, going back to the metal stuff. Lee said the first Charlemagne album is metal, of course, but what I sang was more symphonic. Now in the second one, The Omens of Death, it is 100% heavy metal. And it's true. It goes from this more operatic, symphonic situation to this straight-up metal album. He becomes the oldest living performer to enter the music charts at 91 years and 6 months. His third and final album is came out in 2014 called Metal Night. It's a covers album, and it's going to give us the perfect song to end on for any episode ever, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, quick thing, uh, he also appeared in Kingdom Hearts. He plays Deez and Ansem the Wise in uh, Kingdom Hearts uh, 2, Kingdom Hearts Final Mix, Kingdom Hearts 358 slash 2 Days. Uh, Got to talk about Deez. He's Deez. We love him. Uh, he also appeared in Deus Ex Machina 2. And almost every uh, Lord of the Rings tie-in game. Wait, and uh, it's the Hammer Dracula stuff that he's most embarrassed about? <laughs> what? Interesting. No shame. No shame. I swear to God, those Kingdom Hearts games have the most insane voice cast. Every time we do an episode, we had to be like, oh yeah, and also he was in Kingdom Hearts. So, Lee died on the 7th of June in 2015 after being admitted to the hospital for respiratory problems and heart failure. He had just celebrated his 93rd birthday. And by the way, he's putting metal albums out up until the end. I just think it's so cool. I want to put it out, a metal album out like right before I <laughs> move on from this world. It's just Christopher Lee and David Bowie just dropping those hot death albums. Tim Burton said he was the last of his kind, a true legend, who I'm fortunate to have called a friend. He will continue to inspire me and I'm sure countless others for generations to come. Smart Scorsese spoke out about how they had been friends and talking up until the end and how much he'd miss him. Peter Jackson said there will never be another Christopher Lee. He has a unique place in the history of cinema and in the hearts of millions of fans around the world. An icon of cinema has passed into legend. Lovely quote, and I think so appropriate for this guy. What, what, a, what a phenomenal life story. What a just prolific, over 200 movies. That's so insane. And great person to cover because we you, from Star Wars to to B movie horror with Dracula, it's like everything that our show Martin is about. Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Everyone loves Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Everyone loves Hugo. I do actually really love Martin Scorsese's Hugo, but also even a little bit of anime in there with Kingdom Hearts and heavy metal, <laughs> like nerdy heavy metal. It's perfect. 
he sort of has every little flavor that this show is about, and it was so much fun to learn about him. Jake, do you have anything else, any any other little tidbits or factoids before we wrap this up with the best song to end an episode on ever? Uh, no, I think uh, I think we pretty much covered it. It was a lot to like try and condense into an hour of uh, high-quality podcast audio, but I think we did a good enough job. Hell yeah. Check out The Wicker Man if you're curious to see him and what he at least believes is one of the best movies he's ever been in. I, I thought that was a great one to check out. A lot of boobies. A lot of um, unnecessary boobage going on, I feel like. But, it's uh, European. Just know it's... what you're getting into. It's a song where a lady's totally naked and she's singing at a door, and it's weird. And uh, I really appreciated it. Oh, so. he was in a Police Academy Mission to Moscow. Nice. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Either way. He was also in The Stupids. Of course he was. He's in over 200 movies. Either way. Uh, all right. I think that's where we're going to end it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to follow us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew is oh, then our what Patreon. Do you, what, do, what do patrons get if they go to patreon.com slash For just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode of content every single week. 30 minutes or so of Jake and I talking about the things we like, talking about different subjects, talked about the recent Twitter, or I'm sorry, Twitch drama happening. You know, good stuff like that. Current events, old events, nostalgia chats, either way. $15 gives you the study session. You join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. ET, and we hang out and cover whatever research topic we are covering that week. We, we just kind of take a little dip into that research. This past week was watching Christopher Lee movie clips and things like that. Next week's going to be taste testing energy drinks, which is going to be interesting. Either way, it's a lot of fun. And at $25, you get a Patreon shout out. We'll say whatever you want to say at the end of an episode. Jake? Oh, that sounds like a really good way to engage with this great show. Uh, follow me is. on Twitter at Best Jake Young for all of my thought droppings. And uh, Holden, let's let's uh, cue this up and take us home. Here we go. Never stop bruising. Keep on whizzing. Here you have Christopher Lee performing a metal cover of My Way, which is the most played song at a funeral. So it's a perfect way to honor the man, the life, the legacy of Christopher Lee. Please, Mary, hit it. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.